Aloha, aloha, Ronnie Landis here, and welcome to another edition of the official Ronnie Landis podcast show. And we have something special lined up for you today. Not to say that our inter- our other interviews aren't special, they're incredibly special. Each one is hand-selected. Each guest I have on the show is specifically selected for a specific theme and a specific purpose that we unfold on every episode of this podcast, but this one's kind of special to me in that way. It's very unique. But before we get to that, I want to divert your attention just for a moment to the Holistic Health Mastery Certification Course. If you have been following my work for some time or you've been listening to these podcasts, I typically open every podcast with the same immediate introduction, which is... To share this uh, per, this program, this educational course that I had created over an entire year and a half of just nailing down the most important aspects of revolutionizing one's lifestyle, their nutritional understanding around all the intricacies, all the details of raw living foods, of superfood nutrition, traditional tonic herbal nutrition natural supplementation, um, detoxification, cleansing protocols, neurological health, preconception, pregnancy health, and also child development, uh, hormone health, all kinds of amazing avenues that are all coalescing together. In the old days, we could only get educated on all these specific topics in a compartmentalized way, in a fragmented way kind of like a pharmaceutical-based consciousness where we could only really look at things in isolation. We didn't have the cohesion or the integrative perspective that all of these different topics and modalities really work synergistically together as. And that's essentially what I created with a number of people in the Holistic Health Mastery Certification course. So you can find much more information on that at holistichealthmastery.com. So on with it. Today's interview is featuring a very dear friend of mine, someone that I have the utmost respect for personally and professionally. Her name is Danny Gray, and she lives in Sedona, Arizona. And I met her when I was living in Sedona for about, you know, almost half a year. And we became very good friends. And her work in the field of yoga is second to none. I mean, her classes, her yoga classes, her Dharma yoga classes specifically – are the most potent yoga classes I've ever been exposed to. And her knowledge of the philosophy, the art, the lifestyle, and the science of yoga that all yoga practices are predicated on is one of the best explanations I've ever come across. And she wouldn't even admit it because she doesn't really look at herself as an expert per se, but she's stepping more into that role of embodying a sense of uh, mastery and, uh, you know, far beyond her years, really powerful. And this interview was incredibly well articulated, well expressed, everything that we talked about so well explained that it gave me goosebumps just listening to the whole thing between us. 
and we go into areas that we haven't gone into in any other podcast. We really drill into the philosophical undertones of the Hindu, Ayurvedic, and yogic culture and its relationship to diet. And we drive that in because a lot of people have a confusion about Ayurveda in relation to raw foods, in relation to some of the dosha types, and the misinterpretation of the doshas in relation to organizing a high raw food-based diet. We really dive into that aspect, and I think we flushed out some really key perspectives, some really key insights that are much more accurate to today's understanding of these different concepts. You guys are going to get so much out of this episode. I I, I, I know it. I, I can hardly wait to, to stop talking here and just get into it. So, hey, maybe that's a good sign. Without further ado, let me introduce with you Danny Gray. Enjoy. The practice of Dharma Yoga found Danny in 2010, and after her first class, she began to immerse herself in it. She discovered through heartfelt self-practice that this lineage of yoga is an incredibly powerful tool for embodied empowerment in total transformation. After observing the way her life began to improve in every aspect through consistent practice, she naturally felt called to share this form of yoga with others. She participated in Sri Dharma Mitra's 200-hour Life of Yogi teacher training in June 2010 and completing her certification the following May. And she completed her 500-hour certification in May 2013. In August 2015, she completed Sri Dharma's advanced 800-hour training program. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rani. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, it feels like at this point in the the podcast um, uh, maturation with everyone that we've had on the show that it was just time that I brought you on. You know what I think about you as a friend and just professionally. I think that you have so much brilliance and so much, um, obviously, so much knowledge of yoga and an experiential knowledge of your own experience teaching yoga and obviously I mean when I look at this and I look at 200 hours of teacher training then I look at another 500 hours of teacher training then I look at 800 hours I mean that to me is monumental and I just want to actually just like acknowledge that really quickly Um, that is monumental that's incredible and so but that, but for me personally, it's a lot more impactful because I've done your yoga classes when I lived in Sedona, and um, I've done a lot of your yoga classes, and I had the firsthand experience of actually experiencing what yoga with Danny Gray was like, and it was really the most profound yoga experience that I've ever had, and yeah, so good job. Wow, that's, that's really a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a big deal because before then, I had not those to yoga, and I know there's a lot of different variations and a diversity of modalities in terms of how yoga is expressed, whether it might be some of the more, um, I guess I would say, diluted forms or more the, the, the softer, the softening of yoga for kind of a Western 
um, introduction and then what you do and some of the more traditional forms of yoga. And so I didn't really kind of have that understanding um, in terms of me actually doing yoga. So you know, your classes really were a great introduction for me and helped me actually to get interested in the philosophy of yoga because I grew up as a martial artist. So it made so much sense once I got into it. I realized like how these things actually complemented each other, like the yin aspect of yoga practice, the yang of most martial arts applications, and in the philosophy of Eastern culture in general. So anyways, uh, yeah, I, I would love to start off by just, um, you know, let's get to know you a little better. What got you into yoga in the first place? And we'll go from there. So uh, for most of my young life, I was studying to be a dancer. Um, I was really serious about dancing from the time I was around 14. And I was attending school at a place called SUNY Purchase Conservatory of Dance. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but it's a really intense, vigorous training program for young dancers in this country. And um, my first semester of school, I was dealing with, um, uh, to put it bluntly, an eating disorder that had been sort of bubbling beneath the the surface for some years and um, was really becoming an issue at the forefront of my experience. And so I started seeing this doctor on my campus. And, um, you know, one day in the course of um, just observing a little bit more about my experience, becoming more aware of, of what was at the root of this, seemingly out of nowhere, I thought to myself one day, I should learn to meditate. I think every single one of my problems can be attributed to the fact that I don't know how to just be still and be with myself. Um, and so I talked to my the doctor that I was seeing about that, and she said, oh, well, there's this woman on campus. You can learn meditation from her. And so I went, um, and I learned a very simple practice of meditation that I then started doing. It's based on a mantra, and I did this meditation for a year and a bit. And um, I went to a summer program to study a different style of modern dance than was being offered at my, at my college program, and I thought would be a really good... Um, supplementation for my movement education. And so I, upon signing up for the program, they asked, okay, well, in the morning, there's two warm-up classes that you can choose from. There's yoga or there's breath work. And uh, typically my experience at these summer dance intensives is when you sign up for a yoga class or you go to a yoga class that's on the schedule, it's sort of like, okay, we'll like sit around and stretch and pretend that we're doing something. Um, and so, it's, you know, even, even before I really understood what is yoga, I had this feeling that what I was doing in those classes was not really yoga. Um, but for some reason, I still honestly cannot remember to this day why I signed up for this yoga class anyway. Um, so I went on the first day and I remember walking into the room and the teacher was just sort of walking around. He had some incense that he was, you know, moving around the space with, and he had this like light music playing in the background. And I just remember looking at this man and being like, what is this guy's deal? Like he's so peaceful and so bright and calm and just like present. Like, what does he know? I want to know what he knows. And so I was very intrigued by just the way he was, you know, he hadn't even done anything. We hadn't even uh, interacted at all. The class hadn't begun. He just was there in the space and his energy was profound for me. Um, and so we were, uh, we were sitting before the class started and he sort of gathered us into a group and asked us each to share about 
you know, if we had practiced yoga before and what kinds and what our experience had been since it was the first day and everything. And we were just getting acquainted. And so as we were going around sharing, I noticed that this music that was playing in the background, um, the woman that was singing was singing a mantra. And it was the mantra that I had been saying in my head every day for about a year and a half that I learned from that meditation teacher. And I thought to myself, wow, I think something really important is about to happen. I, mm-hmm. I was at such a different phase in my life. I didn't even uh, know the word synchronicity or what that meant. <laughs> but looking back, it's just so obvious and clear to me that it was like a sign from the universe. Like, you know, this is important. This is part of your path and pay attention. And so, um, you know, everyone shared a bit and we, we finished the circle and it got back to him and he said, okay, well, so this practice we're going to do today, it's called Dharma Yoga. And it's based on um, the teachings of a man named Sri Dharma Mitra, who's still alive, and he's based in New York City. And, um, you know, he didn't really say much else. We just started the practice. And, um, you know, by the end of the class, I, I felt completely different than I had ever felt in my life. I was so much more comfortable in my body, first of all, um, so much more calm and just effortlessly present. You know, I didn't have to think about, okay, like, be here now, keep your attention here, you know. It was just like I was experiencing everything uh, thoroughly and and fully. Um, And I guess another thing that sort of grabbed me, specifically with Dharma Yoga, was that for that entire year in school, I had been trying to teach myself. Again, it was sort of like out of nowhere, I got this download, like, I have to teach myself now to be upside down. I don't know where it came from, but it sort of, in my head, it originated as this idea that um, being inverted was a gap in my movement vocabulary. And as a dancer, I, you know, like educating myself and expanding what was possible for me, I thought, you know, I really need to learn to be comfortable like this. Um, so I started trying to teach myself to do a headstand and was completely unsuccessful. And I had a lot of friends in school at the time that had backgrounds in gymnastics and various other things. And they all tried to teach me and none of them could. I was completely unsuccessful. <laughs> this first day, this man, without touching me, got me up into a headstand. It was just the way that he demonstrated it step by step. And he didn't talk very much even. He was just like, so you do this and then you do this and then you do that. And I got up there and just like was upside down. And I almost like threw myself out of the pose because I was so ecstatic that I was finally doing it, you know. Um, And so, yeah, there were a lot of things that first day that that really just drew me in. And, um, you know, I had that same class with that teacher every day for about two weeks. And for the rest of that summer... I just did that practice every single day. And, um, you know, no one told me to, but I just wanted to because I felt incredible. And I saw that things were changing. I saw not just that um, my body was getting stronger and more flexible than it had been through years of dance training, um, but also that I was just developing this appreciation for the fact that the body is a miracle and it's something to be loved and cared for. And, um, you know, I, I feel truly like I was a complete completely different person by the end of that summer. And I remember going back to school and my classmates all noticed it. They would look at me and they'd be like, what did you do this summer? Like you are completely different, you know? And it was, it was a number of things, not just physical, of course, like, um, I became a lot more confident in, in my dancing life, but also just the way I, I carried myself, uh, with my friends was completely different. So that's sort of the beginning of the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I love how you you really just kind of share and articulate the that part of the journey. And 
I find it just really cool to bring up to, um, as you said, like as you went through this experience and were introduced to yoga by these insights and just jumped into it, um, that you started to glow more and it probably affected your posture, right? And just the way you held yourself and Completely. Um, in the emanation of your personality and, and that transfers over energetically to other people that are used to you in a certain way. And this is relevant to any of us that are in some kind of transformative process. We're in a transition from where we've been to where we're going. And there is that moment in time where you realize that people's perception of you is changing or their 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 behavior in terms of how they they respond to you is shifting because you're actually a shifted human being right completely um yeah so so the other thing i wanted to mention with that is that yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense because my experience with you is that you do you do have this glow about you and and it's <laughs> it's it's more than just um you know, we call we we have a joke in like the raw food world, like the raw food glow. You know, uh -huh. when someone does a juice cleanse or something, um, yeah, they have this glow about them. This auric emanation comes out, and they become more colorful, right? Right. Um, and the skin clears up and all that. But but you you and I know that you have an incredibly healthy um, lifestyle, which we'll discuss. But that's one of the unique things I I pick up from you and my experience with you is that you have this this extraordinary glow about you and I really feel that a lot of it is is coming from just the way you hold yourself and it sounds to me like that wasn't always the case and that yoga was a profound um, I guess installation into that process yes completely I mean you know uh, we can when we're talking about what is yoga, it's of course a million different things. But uh, one of one of the main definitions, I guess, that I would offer is that yoga is a method. It's a set of tools, you know. And uh, what what we use these tools for is really uh, to begin peeling back the external and superficial layers and anything that's sort of gotten in the way of our light shining through, you know, and yoga philosophy very much talks about the idea that we all have this light within us. This, you know, my, my teacher, Sri Dharma says an equal portion of God, whatever the word God means to you, um, but an equal portion of God in, in all living beings. And so I think that everyone has this capacity to glow in this way. Um, and it, it really just has to do with taking the time and maybe it doesn't look exactly the same as it has for me in my process, but taking the time to look within and uh, to be able to connect with that and let go of whatever is inhibiting it from fully coming through. Mm, I love that. Um, I'm a humongous advocate and student of the teachings of Michael Beckwith. Mm -hmm. And one of the core principles that he always speaks about is that we have four stages of consciousness. And I've started kind of teaching this in some of my lectures, just kind of like nuances and stuff. And it basically goes, the first stage is to me, you know, like the world is to me. I'm the cause of, of it's all effect. Like I'm at the effect of the world. It's kind of a victim, uh -huh. victimization. And sure. then the second stage is um, by me. So things happen by me. It's like, that's where 
most of the personal development information is. It's more empowered. It's like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to make things happen. Right. Um, and then there's through me. And that's the principle that, that uh, Michael Beckwith speaks a lot about is that it's not that something's happening to you and it's not even that you're making something happen. There's there He asks a question, what wants to emerge through me in this moment? What is the presence of God that wants to become more aware of itself using me as an instrument? Mm, absolutely. And that that right there, like the more I tune into that, it just is so profound for me personally. And I feel like that's that's kind of what you're you're hinting at. Completely. And uh, I'm not very highly familiar with the work of Michael Beckwith that you're talking about. Um, but Sri Dharma says exactly the same thing, perhaps in simplified languaging, because he um, English is actually his second language. He's originally from Brazil. Um, and so he'll often say, you know, I am not the doer. And mm -hmm. it's this idea of just letting go of things happen because I initiate some action, you know, and when he teaches you, you very much feel that. And I think a lot of Dharma yoga teachers, myself included, uh, do our best to emulate that and not get caught up in, okay, like this body, mind, me, this personality structure is the important thing and my knowledge and what I have to say. But it's really about being a vessel and being, you know, almost an empty vessel as much as possible um, and as purely as possible, bringing through whatever wants to be brought through um, for everyone to grow and uplift each other in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well put. Um, what, so with that said, um, what are some of the, the tools and, um, maybe, uh, you know, utilities in your life that you've used to kind of create more of that, that gateway for inspired transmissions, if you will. Mm. And, and just, and I want to, I want to add on to that real quick, just for anyone else listening who didn't quite get what I just said, um, Inspired insights might be more of a, a universally understandable um, term, you know, like like what the, the inspirations that come through us that lead us to our next action step that we want to take. I know that there are specific lifestyle practices that enhance that process. So I'm just again, I'm curious, what have those been for you? Sure. So, you know, I think this also uh, for me, brings up a conversation or a discussion that wants to be brought to light, which is perhaps around what what is yoga anyway? Mm -hmm. um, because especially here in this country, we often get confused. You know, we say like, like oh, I do Pilates. Right. <laughs> or like, I do yoga. I'm going to yoga. You know, most people don't understand like Ooh. yoga that you the classes that you attend for the most part are asana classes. And mm. so asana means posture or seat. And it refers to the physical poses that we practice. Um, and that is just one of eight limbs of the classical yogic system. And so there's, you know, there's many other things involved, you know. Um, the first two limbs actually have nothing to do um, with the body, really. I mean, sort of in a in an indirect way. Um, they're called the yama and niyama. And they talk a lot about, um, you know, I don't want to say it's a moral code. That's perhaps an antiquated term. But um, they do, they have a little bit more to do with conduct, you know, how you are as a person and how you choose to carry yourself in this world. The first yama is compassion. Um, and so that's, that's really a pillar of, of a, 
you know, an effective yoga practice. And it's something that Sri Dharma speaks about a lot. You know, you, you almost can't go to a class with him without hearing him talk about compassion. Um, because he's, you know, he often says that without compassion, your practice goes nowhere. Hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, that's definitely a part of a lifestyle practice and lifestyle choices that I've made. Also under the umbrella of yoga, you know, falls things like breath work, pranayama, as they call it. And there's many, many different exercises that you can do personally right now. Um, you know, pranayama has been a big part of, of my personal practice, but right now it's not something that I'm diving as deeply into for many reasons. Um, meditation is also part of the umbrella of yoga. Um, you know, and there's a number of other limbs too, that are a little bit more subtle and, um, perhaps not even things that you really say you can practice, but are sort of natural evolutions of what occurs through the more, uh, foundational or elemental limbs. Um, they call them limbs, right? There's eight different limbs in the, in the classical yoga system. Um, and so also, you know, it's really like, Within each individual aspect, I would say all the others are also found. It's like the whole microcosm, macrocosm thing. Um, Because when you talk about compassion, of course, it begins to extend into every other area of your life, including, you know, dietary choices. And um, that's, that's for me something that I'm constantly exploring, you know, gaining more knowledge and observing more about the effects of, you know, what I eat and how that how that plays out in my body, how it affects my mental state, and, you know, not just the way that my body feels and looks, um, and also how those choices affect the rest of the planet, you know. Um, So definitely diet is a big thing, but it really, I think what it comes down to is bringing this element of mindfulness and presence and really just pure awareness to everything that we do, um, all of our interactions in in our lives, and, um, you know, that includes literally everything. Um, I can speak more about food if you want me to, but it, it feels, I, I feel like I've, you know, kind of given some basic information at least, but yeah, well, no, it's, it's profound wisdom really. And it's, it's universal in, 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 in the way that's being shared. And, and I think what you're alluding to essentially is that active meditation principle is that mm-hmm. it's not me- a, a meditative state is not, um, designated simply to sitting down in some type of posture and doing and breathing and focusing on nothing really right Right, absolutely Um, that's a misunderstanding of the core principle which is essentially you do that or my my perspective is that we sit down to do that to actually clear our field to clear it's not about we're trying to reach a goal of enlightenment um which really just means to lighten up a lot of times. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like for me, I meditation, when I sit down to meditate every morning, a part of it is a connection with the creator. It's, it's a clear transmission between me and my creative faculties and what I believe to be the presence of, dare I say, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, as I know that's not popular anymore, right? But um, sure. I have a completely different interpretation of that. But um, anyway, so I feel like it's actually a responsibility, almost the same way we have a social contract with one another that we are going to brush our teeth, we are going to... Um, we are going to practice hygiene and shower um, before we go out into the world kind of thing, right? right well, completely. there's also an un- unannounced social contract about 
clearing our unresolved issues of the morning, you know, the things that bubble up. So when we do go out into the world, people are actually dealing with us and they're not dealing with our resentments and our traumas and our unresolved issues. And so for me, that's what that act of sitting down and doing breath of fire and getting my my diaphragm ready and whatever, you know, on and on. Sure. Um, But then I take that state, that energy um, th- with me the best I can, the mindfulness that you mentioned, and, and that applies to everything. Right, completely. Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, meditation and yoga really in general is not just something that you do in the morning and then forget about. Um, I'll never forget one of the most profound moments of my 200-hour training was near the end. Uh, the director of that training program, you know, of course, Sri Dharma teaches almost all of the classes during the training, but um, the director of the program itself, his name is Adam Fry. He's a longtime student of Dharma's and he's obviously, you know, based in New York. And um, towards the end of the teacher training, we were sort of sitting having this discussion where everyone was saying like, okay, you know, now we've learned all of this stuff and we have all of these tools and, you know, so what do we do on a daily basis? Like, I, I want to do all of it. I want to go home and like make these huge changes in my life and like have a meditation room and, you know, practice for five hours and you know, because by the end of that immersion period, we're all so supercharged. We have these high hopes and, you know, these visions that that will actually become a reality. But then we get back to our lives and it's sort of like, oh, wait, that's not at all realistic. Um, And so Adam, Adam said to us, like, you know, definitely start a little bit more gently, you know, implement changes, you know, on a small basis, like, add things one at a time, don't think that you're going to go home and change everything. Also, remember, that living life is your practice. It's your sadhana. And so, you know, that it just struck me in that moment that, right, like, you know, living everything that we do can be part of this spiritual process. It doesn't have to be limited to these certain actions that we think are going to give us a certain result even. It's really just about setting ourselves up, um, clearing our energies, as you've mentioned, um, as much as possible, to become receptive to grace, you know, that higher energy frequency, um, God, you know, I, I personally don't have a problem using that word because I know what I mean. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I know it hits other people in a certain way. So if you want to substitute God for source or creator or divinity or, you know, the supreme self or, you know, whatever word, um, that's what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, this is a brilliant opportunity for me to share a funny, um, yet insightful, quick little story. Mm -hmm. Um, so do you know who Nassim Haramin is? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So, uh, I met him for the first time months ago here on Kauai before he moved out of the Resonance Project, which is like, which was about five minutes from where I live now. Mm -hmm. And so we're hanging out, we're clicking really well and, uh, which is a funny thing in of itself. But anyways, we, we end up at the, at the end of the night, him and me end up in this like two or three hour conversation in, um, in the living room. And the basic idea of this entire conversation was, was our difference in perspective on the nature of reality and spirituality. And, and Mm, we got into this whole thing and, the basic distillation of it was that he had an issue with the word God Mm. and he really was like, you know, driving it. And he's like, look, no, 
what everyone thinks of as God is actually a mathematical algorithm. It's a formula that can be figured out, like what we associate as God is. is it can be figured out mathematically, like. Um, it's kind of a weird, actually, way of. It. Um, mm. But as an engineer, as a physicist, who sure. is who is a spiritual, uh, spiritually inclined person? I could I could get where he was coming from, right? And so Absolutely. I brought up this this point. It, it took me three hours to get to this place where I was like, <laughs> okay, look, here's what I think the deal is: that there is a force, there's a there is a, a presence. A powerful presence that is omnipresent. It's universal in its availability to everyone. And regardless of what we call it, the, it doesn't actually matter because as long as you know that it's there and you have a relationship to it, then that's actually the point of all, all, um, all sacred religious texts that hasn't been um, rewritten and used as a programming tool. Sure. That sounds like a really juicy conversation. I wish I had been there for that. <laughs> you know, it's it brings up a couple of things for me, actually. Um, the first is another story that someone told me about an experience they had uh, going to Japan with Sri Dharma because he travels all over to teach. And um, if you if you take class with him on a regular basis, you know, he ends almost every class by saying, be receptive to the grace of God. Mm. Um, and so he went to Japan and he taught. And at the end of class, you know, he had a translator, of course. And at the end of class, he said, be receptive to the grace of God. And the translator talked for like five minutes, you Whoa. know, <laughs> and it was like, what, what, what was that person saying? And so the translator explained afterwards, like, I know what you mean when you say God, but a lot of people in this room don't. Um, and of course, like, you know, it's, it's a very loaded word, the, the things that we've sort of assigned to it, or, it, you know, of course, it depends the conditions, how each person grows up and what their experience with the word God has been. And for a long time, I was resistant to use that word. And, you know, even in my classes, I'm, you know, uh, as a Dharma yoga teacher, you're encouraged to end class in the same way. And I remember we had this discussion in, in almost all of my trainings about like, well, what do you do if it's not really appropriate to say God? So I've started saying just like be receptive or be receptive to grace, you know, because that's a little bit easier for some people to swallow. Um, and I would also say, um, you know, personally, I, I can't authentically say that I have realized God necessarily. Um, and I think probably um, God consciousness, really, it might be a measurable force, you know, and it might be able to be reduced to an algorithm that you can understand mentally. But having the experience of being the absolute or um, knowing yourself as God is perhaps an entirely different thing. And that's not something that I think can be known or understood by the logical reasoning mind. Um, at least that's been my experience thus far, because I can tell myself all day long that I'm God and that we're all God. And, you know, but it doesn't change my perception that I'm in this individual body and having this individual experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very well put. So the area that I would love to dive into with you, Danny, is this uh, the idea surrounding our relationship to nutrition and lifestyle in relation to yoga in this case. One thing I've noticed in the yoga community that I've been exposed to, um, probably because I'm, I'm rooted into the raw food and vegan vegetarian world and the superfood world, it's probably why it shows up more for me, but... 
I've noticed that people that have been devoted to yoga, maybe they're getting into yoga and they're just really enthusiastic about the whole lifestyle, or they've done yoga for a long time like yourself, and they're really devoted to the, the philosophy and the lifestyle. There seems to be this, this consistent theme, of course not all the time, but I do notice that people that I know or I know of that are really do- devoted to their yoga practice tend to adopt um, a high raw or more so vegan and vegetarian um, diet. And so I'm curious your perspectives and your experience um, on that, that connection. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I am vegetarian and have been for about seven years now. And I've been sort of on and off with a vegan diet and experimented with raw, you know, definitely a, a high quota of raw food in my diet. I've never been 100% raw. Um, I feel a little bit like uh, I'm at a confessional when I say that because I know a lot of yogis uh, do that. But, um, you know, I personally, I became vegetarian before I even started practicing yoga um, through uh, research of my own and just sort of made this decision that I needed to be vegetarian. And um, for me, it was a very easy transition. You know, uh, I didn't really grow up in a culture where meat was like a central part of of our family lifestyle and our sense of togetherness. And, you know, there was, there was nothing really around that for, for me. Um, so I literally just gave up meat one day and never looked back. Um, and then I began practicing yoga with my teacher, Sri Dharma. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually... Um, almost a rare occurrence to take a class with Sri Dharma and not hear him speak about diet and vegetarianism specifically, you know, because there's, um, there's many different limbs of, of the practice of yoga. And the first two that we tend to neglect the most, uh, in the, in this Western society, they're called Yama and Niyama. And I don't want to say they're like rules, but it's, it is kind of a code of, like morality and how to conduct yourself in the world. Um, and, you know, it covers a lot of different things, but the very first one is called ahimsa, and this means nonviolence, non-killing. It's frequently translated as compassion. And so that's sort of where my teacher is coming from, is this idea that all beings love life and, um, you know, that it's sort of wrong to place your life as having a higher value than that of other creatures on this earth. Um, you know, and it, from a very practical perspective, uh, a vegetarian diet and a vegan diet, for sure, um, I've, I'm saying this based on my experience, not just something that I've read, but I have noticed that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle supports a really, really deep spiritual practice um, in a number of ways. Definitely the body changes. You know, when you start to eliminate um, toxic substances, the the joints tend to just open up, you know, the body transforms rapidly. Personally, in the periods where, where I've been uh, mostly vegan or 100% vegan, I've noticed that my progress in terms of my physical practice is very much more rapid than at other times. Um, but also, it's, you know, this, this science of yoga, there's so many different things that we can say about it. But one thing that definitely is focused on um, in, in various scriptures and definitely uh, even in yoga as it's being practiced today is this idea of purifying the body and the mind. Um, and I would say that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle supports that, even, even the mental aspect of sort of clearing out any of this like 
uh, psychic garbage that, that is accumulated um, in the mental aspect and also in your energetic body. And, um, you know, it's not something that I've done a lot of scientific research on. It's not even maybe something that is so quantifiable that we could say, you know, uh, that we could point to certain things and say, like, scientifically prove, yes, you know, vegetarian diet induces this particular, you know, maybe someone is equipped to do that kind of research. Personally, I'm just speaking from experience. And the fact that in the times where my diet is the cleanest, my meditation is also the cleanest. Mm. I find my mind is, um, you know, sharp and clear. Uh, and much more subtle aspects of awareness become available to me. And that's not to say that vegetarian and vegan diet is for everyone, and it may not even be forever. Um, I'm continually researching and uh, just noticing the effects of, of my diet on my practice and my life overall. Um, and definitely new information becomes available all the time, but I do see the value of uh, a vegan diet and also a raw diet for the purposes of purification and for going very deeply into spiritual practice. I think that, you know, they're sort of tied together in ways that are not the easiest to explain, but anyone who has um, followed this lifestyle would probably report similar results. And I, I have also experienced similar things in my own process. Absolutely. And as have I. And I feel like, um, you know, oftentimes a vegan diet or a raw food diet is associated with a monastic type of lifestyle. Someone that would be like a monk or someone that's devoted their life to, you know, being in a monastery or, or something like that, which, you know, obviously plays itself out like the Shaolin monks um, in terms of like veganism um, sure. or... Um, you know, different sectors in the world, what I really appreciate you bringing up is the ahimsa concept, which is do no harm to others and also do no harm to yourself. For sure. And that's an interesting kind of um, bridge there between those two statements because oftentimes we only hear that one sentence is the do no harm to others, right? And right. that can be a difficult place to completely live by because in our world and the way it's always been, um, there is there is a cycle of life, right? And there's a sure. lot of different interpretations of that. But my, and my goal, like Thich Nhat Hanh, um often says, is really the goal of, of any human being um, on a spiritual path is to walk lighter on the earth. Hmm. We're not going to avoid um, killing in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm going to drive a car. You know, there's going to be a fly or a bug or a mosquito that gets, right. you know, it's and, and things happen. So, you know, just to have that balanced perspective as we go into this realm and that other that other statement that follows that up in the Ahimsa, um, do no harm to ourselves. And so I feel just to have that philosophical grounding I feel like the, the, the Vedic and um, just the Hindu culture in general really kind of keyed in on that totality, which is, you know, why I like the concept of vegetarianism so much is because, you know, like you and many others, I was vegan for a while and really, really held strong with that. But then I just started to lose my, my conviction for that concept as as an exclusion to all animal products or any participation with animals whatsoever. And I came mm -hmm. to realize, like, you know, working on a permaculture farm and things of that nature, um, I realized that that wasn't really the most realistic um, 
lifestyle, but for me and my ideals, uh, vegetarianism really made a lot of sense. Like the Hindu culture is basically like a, some say 5,000 year old culture of vegetarianism and they used, you know, a cow and a completely different type of cow than we have here in the States. It's like totally. hybridized, domesticated and like bred to death. Um, yeah. and you know, to create things like alchemical things like, like, um, you know, basically the end products of a cow's metabolism, like uh, milk, butter, and ghee. And then right. it seems to me that that's how they intuited it, that they were able to get what they needed from fat or, or certain proteins or whatever the case is to stay balanced and, and, and not to go off, um, you could say, like the deep end just because of their belief. So it's an interesting dance, and I really... Yeah, I really vibe with that perspective that you come from, and um, yeah. I really appreciate, actually, the fact that you brought up uh, monks specifically and people that are sort of diving into this spiritual life in in a different way, in a much more austere and, uh, you know, structured way than perhaps uh, the average person who practices yoga and even to a very, uh, I don't want to say serious, but, you know, that, that their sadhana, their spiritual practice is a big part of their life. It's still different than living at an ashram. And, um, you know, I, I definitely think that something I see a lot in, in the yoga community is, you know, people that sort of are dogmatically vegan or dogmatically raw, and they just sort of abide to this this principle. And it's interesting to me because it it's almost like, you know, for me, a big part of, of of practicing yoga is increasing your awareness and your ability to be fully present with everything that you do. And sometimes I feel like this this uh, dogma that comes up around food is sort of uh, the part of our personality structure. Some might use the word ego. You know, some people don't like that word. So whatever, you can say personality structure. But it's sort of like the part of us that wants to just turn off and not have to think about things like, okay, all plant food is good. All animal food is bad. And now I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I can just follow this rule and be okay. Um, and that's not always, you know, that's not always beneficial, um, for the world and for yourself. You know, it's exactly what we're saying along the lines of compassion, just because something is a plant-based food does not automatically mean that it's going to be the more compassionate choice for the environment, for your community, for your body. Um, and I think that the willingness to be present and really look at your choices on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-to-moment basis, is what fosters this overall sense of compassion. You know, And I think that that is much more important. The other thing that I wanted to say, um, sort of going back to what I initially was talking about, you know, um, vegetarian and vegan diet definitely, and raw food diet, for sure, because they tend to be so purifying, uh, clearing out your energetic channels, there is this tendency that I notice when people have done this kind of thing for a long period of time, where they become like they almost become raw, like they are so sensitive to life around them. And that's amazing. You know, it's it's that presence, that awareness, that sensitivity of perception, which is what we're um, part of what we're trying to cultivate through spiritual practice. However, if you're living outside of an ashram, that can be really intense. If you're living in a big city, that can be really intense. And so um, it speaks to what you you mentioned about 
the Hindu culture using certain products, it, they almost act like um, like a coating, a protective layer for your nervous system so that you don't get totally like uh, shocked and overwhelmed by the energy of life that's happening around you as a householder person who's trying to live in the world, you know? Um, and I think that that's where it's important for us to start to become present, you know, to, to really notice, like, is this, is, is this lifestyle, are my nutritional choices actually supporting me doing what I want to do in the world? And, you know, spiritual practice can be your primary focus, but still most of us have to have a job and, and function in the world on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think it's that point where it becomes really necessary for us to look more closely at our choices and to use nutrition to really set ourselves up, you know, so that we're strong and vibrant and, you know, we don't sort of fall apart at every little thing or we don't like spin off into space and get like just totally deranged in our heads and, you know, flighty and all these other problems start to come um, when we become obsessive or dogmatic about our food. I've, I've observed it time and time again in other people. And so that's why for myself, I really attempt to cultivate a level of presence um, that's subject to change. It's as, it's as spontaneous as I can possibly be. Mm, mm, very well put. And I really like um, one of the, the things that you mentioned earlier about um, on a vegan or vegetarian and high-raw diet, um, your meditation is more clear. And that's something I noticed too is that, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting conversation to have because it's not intrinsically right or wrong, whatever path you take, but the results are are different so meditating on you know for me when I was eating meat and dairy and that kind of thing me meditating was a challenge mm. it was a challenge and meditating as a vegetarian is far different than meditating as a meat eater you know again it's not totally it's it's just it's the it's the you know the sense of clarity something else ha awakens within you that that seems to be more of like a like a transmission or you become more of an open conduit. Yes, absolutely. And I think it also has to do with not just whether your food is plant-based or animal-based, but in yogic philosophy and yogic science, there are also, um, they talk about the subtle qualities, uh, not just of food, but of everything in this existence. They're called gunas, right? And there's three of them. There's rajas, tamas, and sattva. And, you know, if the Sanskrit doesn't work for you, I, I'm not going to use those words too many more times. But um, rajas is typically thought of as being like agitated, active, mm -hmm. you know, like really, um, you know, and it, it comes to being as like spicy food or garlic, you know. Um, uh, tamas is more thought of as being like lethargic or kind of dead almost, you know. So it's it's definitely animal foods fit in, most animal foods fall into this category. Also like frozen food or reheated food, sort of like devoid of life force, you know. Um, and then sattva is thought of as balanced, you know. And so uh, I, I think it's important to start to tune into maybe the subtle qualities of our food as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some list online somewhere, you know, if you Google it, where it talks about rajasic food and tamasic food and sattvic food. But yeah, it's, it's more about us starting to tap mm -hmm. into the subtle quality and noticing what you're talking about is like how these things are affecting your meditation, for example, you know. 
Yeah, no, this is actually a great point because um, in Ayurveda, oftentimes people will point towards the doshas. And I, right. don't, I don't really actually subscribe to that. I get it. I see it. But I think it's too, like, loose. It's not really as specific mm-hmm. as the, the tamasic, the rajistic, and the sophistic um, mm-hmm. kind of principle and concept. I think that actually is is for me, paints a much more accurate view of the actual lifestyle and diet and the energetic influence that each one is kind of proposing. And I I really went deep into this concept um, in a book that I'm working on and will release sometime uh, in this year um, to give people more of an idea of, uh, you know, basically like, you know, the Tomastic lifestyle being basically like what we see in the world, like a very degraded or um, a very low energy, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, junk food, basically, as, as they sometimes explain it. Like, it's basically like junk food and dead food, right? Yeah. Dead energy, no, no right. energy, no life force whatsoever. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to reading that book, you know. Hmm. It's uh, it's a topic that has definitely steered my choices for a long time now, and I've I've found it to be very supportive when you look at it in this way, rather than sort of trying to create blanket rules that you then follow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, so you know, going from here, I would love to I would love to know, like, what does your daily routine look like? Well, um. It, it changes a little bit each day since I'm always trying to be as spontaneously present as possible with whatever the needs are of, of the day and the moment. But um, um, so, you know, I like to have about three or four hours to myself when I when I first get up that's sort of reserved for my sadhana, my spiritual practice. And I start pretty much the moment I get out of bed. Um, I, I do some breathing exercises before I do anything else. And, uh, the first thing I do, uh, the reason I do them first is because they really need to be done on an empty stomach, even with like liquid in the belly, you know, it's, it's not too comfortable. So I do this process that's called Nauli, which is, um, abdominal rolling. So it's this exercise where you gain control of the rectus abdominis and can then move it almost in this like, uh, this like swirls sort of way, like side to side, uh, that massages all of your internal organs and uh, sort of warms up your digestion so that you can then have a bowel movement, which is really necessary before you go into other deeper practices like asana, for example. Um, so I do my nauli, and it's a really challenging exercise. It's like sometimes if I'm really tired, I'll sort of just like stand there and like breathe for a minute because it it's a really powerful process. It took me a long time to even master the technique. It's, it's quite challenging. Um, so I do my Nauli and then lately I've been into doing, um, another breathing technique called Kapalabhati, which is skull shining breath. It's very cleansing for your respiratory system. Um, and I recently was dealing with a flu situation. So, um, that's why I've sort of taken this on again. I wasn't really doing it for a while, but, um, you know, now it's become relevant again, so I'm doing it. Um, you know, then usually I'll clean my mouth. I do oil pulling, which is an Ayurvedic practice. I use coconut oil because it tastes good. Um, so I switch this oil around, and usually I take a shower at the same time. Um, and then I'll brush my teeth, scrape my tongue, and then I'll drink water. Um, I don't, you know, 
a, a lot of people talk about drinking water when you first wake up, but I think it's important to clean your mouth first. I've read a lot of research that talks about the fact that while you're sleeping, a lot of toxins and sort of gunk can come up through your tongue and through your gums. And it's important to kind of clear that out because if you just drink a bunch of water upon first waking, then you're sort of swallowing all the, all those toxins that your body's trying to expel through your mouth. Um, so I do all of that, you know, the whole process of cleaning the mouth before I even drink water. Um, usually I'll do lemon water. And um, then I sit for meditation, uh, usually for about 30 minutes. And sometimes I'll do different things. You know, some days I wake up and I'm feeling very devotional. And so I'll do a little bit of chanting, different like mantras that I really enjoy. Uh, whatever feels relevant and, and, and fun for me for that day. Um, sometimes I'll just sit and sometimes it's like I finish and I'm like, God, could, I, could you even call that meditation? Like I just sort of sat there and like, you know, my mind was kind of, you know, but it's whatever happens is perfect. But I do it for about 30 or 40 minutes. Um, and then I usually move into my asana practice. And, you know, for me, um, asana is a very, very sacred thing. And it's a lot of fun, of course, and it's good for the body and it, it does keep my muscles toned and th my joints working properly and everything healthy in that way. But it's sort of the most devotional part of the practice for me. It's, it's the way that I've, I've found for divinity to express itself most fully through this nervous system. Um, it's just what I feel called to do. And, and uh, different days I'll do different things. You know, if I'm teaching a lot of classes that day, it's important for me to move through the different forms that I'll likely be teaching so that I don't injure myself later on while I'm teaching. But if I have a really full day, I also won't go too crazy to the point of like exhausting myself, you know? Um, so I just sort of try to be present with what's happening for me. And sometimes I'll, I'll like start the practice and I'll be like, okay, you know, I'm going to kind of take it easy today because I've got a long day. And, but then I get going and it just like something else totally takes over. And I don't even really know how to uh, speak about this part of the practice for me, but it's like, you know, like this morning, for example, I was quite sore when I woke up and I went to start my practice and I, I do play music during my asana practice. You know, some people, more traditional folks will maybe tell you that that's, uh, really not the way you're supposed to do it, but I play really devotional music, you know? Um, and it just, it sort of wakes me up and gets my spirit feeling really bright. And this morning it got to this point where I just like, I, I don't know what happened, but suddenly I was just going so deeply into my practice in ways that I really haven't been able to in a, in a couple of weeks because I've, as I mentioned, been sick. Um, and I feel like if someone had walked by they, like the energy coming from my apartment space, they would have thought that I was like throwing a party in here. Like I was just having so much fun, you know? And when that happens, it's like, I don't hold back because I know when I finish, I'm, it's not like I'm going to be tired. It's not like I forced myself to do something that I didn't really want to do. And my body was really too tired. Like it just happened spontaneously and beautifully, you know? And other days, that's not the case. Other days, it's like I, I struggle through my sun salutations and I do them because I know I have to teach later in the day. But my, you know, it, it's uh, it's sort of, I won't say an obligation, but it is part of my dharma, you know, like my personal dharma, my duty um, and what what needs to be done in order for me to then teach and, and bring the practice through in its purity. It is important for me. And that being said, you know, I, I do have at least one day set aside each week where I don't do my physical asana practice and I allow my body to rest. 
for a long time, that wasn't part of my practice. And I think it was a huge hindrance just in terms of my physical progress and also created some, uh, like strange mental tendencies and almost like, um, guilt. Like I would guilt trip myself sometimes if I didn't practice or if I skipped practice or whatever. And now I've realized the importance of resting. It is absolutely vital on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, just in the context of, of my practice as it stands. Like I spend at least 10 minutes in Shavasana, in the resting pose at the end. Um, ideally, it's more like 15 um, to really bring the body back to its, its most vibrant state and set me up to be really ready for my day to launch at that point. Mm, wow. Yeah, I feel like having having that daily routine and that structure is really powerful to direct the energy where you want it to go and to have the discipline to carry out those those patterns that you know are going to help like kind of anchor you in, ground you, focus the mind. Um, and yeah, I just feel like that's such a powerful thing that yeah. each person can adopt. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I do get up quite early in order to have time to do all of the things that I want to do before my day really begins. And definitely at the beginning, when I was first sort of implementing uh, a practice into my life or integrating a practice into my life, I should say, um, it it took a lot more discipline. And at the beginning, it, it was sort of this mental thing of like, OK, like, you know, this is good for you. You should get up and do it. Um, but also all of the practices that I do are, are very much enjoyable. And even if I'm not in absolute bliss every single day during my practice, I try to choose things that do also create happiness because that's important too. And as I've gone a little bit deeper, um, down this path, I've found that it takes a lot less discipline actually. And I've, I've tapped into more of the devotional aspect of things you know, when you, when you tap into your devotional energy and you really let yourself be carried by it, it's like things that were challenging or felt like a struggle become effortless and, you know, just joyful and this pure expression of, of the love that you are, you know? And, um, so it's not like every day I wake up and feel that immediately, but I do try to set myself up in such a way way that that can flow through during my practice and set me up to be in that space for my day. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I would totally love to go even deeper into this, but we're, we're hitting that time mark. Um, <laughs> what else would you love to leave the audience? Well, gosh, We've definitely talked about a lot of different things, and um, I think I think the most important thing is is to remember why you you do anything in your life. You know, um, I do all of this yoga not because it's cool and not because you know I. I think that some specific thing is going to happen from it. Like, yes, it is my spiritual practice. Yes, I am interested in awakening, uh, enlightenment, illumination, all of these concepts that we toss around. But, um, you know, there's more to it than that. It's, it's, um, it's an expression of love, as I mentioned just a moment ago. And um, I think that no matter, no matter what you do, it's important to understand why for yourself and to do it fully 
like do what you do with absolute intensity. You know, um, there's a lot of teachers that uh, come from different traditions and different backgrounds, but almost all of them, the ones that I've really resonated with, have talked about this idea that like, you know, we have these yogic practices and I'm giving you this thing to do, but like, in reality, you could get the same results sweeping the floor if you did it with a certain kind of intensity, mm. if you did it with total involvement, you know? Um, and so I think that's that's the main thing about all of this stuff is um, giving us the opportunity to practice being absolutely involved in our lives so that we can, you know, be enriched by experience and not feel like it's a struggle or a prison, you know, um, but to really become fully alive in every single moment. Mm. Beautiful. So where can people find out more about you? Well, I do have a website, uh, dannygray.com. It's a little bit rudimentary and under construction right now, but all of the basic information is there. So that's D-A-N-I-G-R-A-Y.com. Um, and it has information about my classes and a means for you to contact me if you're interested in working with me privately or bringing me for a retreat somewhere. You know, those are all things that I'm available for. So you can check me out there. And uh, I also have some social media buttons. So if you want to follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you can find that through the website. Mm, wonderful. Again, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Ronnie. It's really been a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the audience totally, I mean, obviously, if they have stuck through this long, then they clearly have really enjoyed this. Um, and I hope that everybody out there listening, I really hope that you took some really key gems away from this conversation and that you begin implementing it into your daily structure, create that routine for yourself, adopt a pattern of disciplined actions that are going to help you get to where you want to be. And until next time, we will catch you on the next podcast. Aloha.